Welcome to Climate Optimists. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Wanted to remind our listeners that not only do we love the fact that you listen, but that we want to hear from you. If you have any feedback on our episodes, ideas on topics, send us a note. We're creating this podcast for you, and so any feedback you have that enables us to make it better is great. So a key piece of decarbonizing our power sector is modernizing our electrical grid. We've talked about the need to make our grid smarter, but you know what does that actually mean? While Congress is working to pass two infrastructure bills with at least $73 billion earmarked for modernizing the grid, we thought it would be a good time to try to answer that question. Yeah, and you know, before we do that, we should do our uh, Reason for Hope this week, which uh, Ford had a big announcement that they're going to be building three battery factories and uh, an electric truck plant. And this is a huge investment for them of like $11.4 billion, which I think amounts to the largest single investment that an auto producer's made ever, which is, it's really massive. And these plants are going to be carbon neutral when they're up and running and zero waste. That's great. So, I mean, it's really exciting stuff. They're calling them their blue oval cities. Ford's been sort of on the the bottom of the list when it comes to green car companies. Everything from the Ford Excursion back in the day to, you know, eliminating production of sedans. (laughs) So it's, you know, this shows that... uh, that even the bigs can change and move That's in a new direction. Right? They they eliminated the what was that car that the Ford? It was the oh, Ford Fusion. Wasn't Fusion. It? Yeah. Yeah. It just seemed ludicrous to me that you would stop selling sedans in a world <laughs> where we're trying to deal with climate change. But you know, maybe they're turning a corner here. Well, I think they're probably seeing the writing on the wall. And I know that 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 Ford Lightning pickup, which is what this truck plant they're building, is going to be doing. You know, it, there's high demand for that truck, and I think they're seeing that this electric car thing is going to be a big part of their their future. You know, like you said, that maybe they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Sometimes I feel like they kind of <laughs> have like these two audiences where like they go over to the people wanting the, you know, like the SUVs, and again they're like, "Well, we still got this stuff, and we're building American iron, and you don't have to worry about this electric car <laughs> crap." And then they go on the other side, and they're like, "We are leading the industry in electric vehicle." You know what I mean? So I think they're kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth a little bit. But this is still exciting and a really huge deal. I mean, this is big money. Before we get into our discussion of smart grid, I was interested. You know, before this week, how much? How much do you know about smart grid? Like, is this a totally new topic for you, or were you somewhat familiar? I wasn't that familiar. I mean, I think I understood some of the basic concept, but when I thought of smart grid, I probably actually had more of like smart home stuff in my mind. Like, I've been looking at getting a smart thermostat for my house, like a Nest or some of these other designs, and that was probably the most I had in my head about smart grid. You know, with... My years working in energy, I I certainly kind of understood the building blocks, but I don't think I fully appreciated the the suite of benefits it provides, you know, will hopefully provide. Yeah. I thought we'd start off with maybe giving folks a few stats because, you know, I like stats um, to give context on the grid and, and really how big it is. So according to the Department of Energy, there are about 19,000 generating units that are you know interconnected 640,000 miles of high voltage transmission those are the the big lines that run between your power plants and your your cities okay 
And then over 6.3 million miles of distribution. That's a lot of distribution. It is, and it makes you realize when we talk about the need to modernize the grid, how big of a, a task yeah, that definitely. really is. And, and to be clear, that's just in the U.S., you know. Um, right. You've got major electric grids all around the world. Sure. So to help us navigate this, this complex topic, we'll have the help of uh, our guest today, Tom Brim. Tom is a management consultant, you know, industry observer and practitioner who's who started working in smart grid back in 2009 uh, and has been on the front lines of some of the most innovative grid developments of the past decade. He's also been deeply involved in leading proof of concept and demonstrations of what are called distributed energy resources, which we'll, we'll get into here in the interview with him. Very cool. I'm excited to hear it. Tom, welcome to Climate Optimus. Thank you, Jason. I want to start first with a, a question we give every guest, which is when you think about efforts to address climate change, what, what gives you hope? Yeah, well, Jason, you're in luck. Um, you're talking to an <laughs> old guy today. <laughs> I remember the oil crisis of the 1970s, and everyone was basically freaking out that um, we wouldn't be energy independent, and you had to go on certain days to get your gas, depending on your license plate number. And the people who had solar uh, panels were, there was like the domain of the hippies, right? It was very like <laughs> marginal, right? Um, sort of skunk works sort of things. And let's move the clock forward 40 years. And now solar and wind are mainstream, probably inconceivable to the average person then in the 70s. So I think if we keep perspective on the capabilities of technology and putting together good policy and the right will that things can, that climate change we can address. Yeah, I mean, it seems seems like it's valuable to step back and look at kind of these bigger time horizons. So Tom, let's start with the basic question of, you know, what is a smart grid and and why do we need one? Great question, Jason. So, <laughs> so I think we need to take a step back to when we talk about smart grid and just talk about the evolution of the grid uh, in this country. First thing I'd say is there's three grids in this country. There's one in the West, there's one in the East, and of course, Texas has its own. Texas likes to do things their own their way, own so way. That, that's fitting, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And powering these grids basically were big central plants. And these central plants were hydroelectricity, natural gas, coal. And what we saw is that coal grew as a source of that generation power. And by the 90s, over 50% of our generation uh, was via coal. So let's, let's forward the clock a little bit. So we started to realize, oh, geez, maybe all this fossil fuel source generation isn't such a good thing. And in the early 90s, federal government created a massive tax credit to incent the development of wind. So now when you're driving around many parts of the country, Iowa, Minnesota, Southern California, you see these big wind farms. Now we're seeing the same thing with solar. In 2006, federal government enacted a large incentive for investments in solar. And now we're seeing the day when solar uh, is being generated on large scale. So what this means is the grid is getting greener. Great thing, right? Yeah, that's, that's what we want. That's what we want. It's, it's the goal. It's greener. But... It also means that we're relying on inherently variable sources 
of power more and more. So we have these uh, great sources of electricity now that are renewable. But one thing to keep in mind, one challenge for the grid is uh, you can't store electricity inherently. The second you flip on a light switch, that power has to be generated. It's like at the speed of light, or they say like 90% of the speed of light. It's one of the few products out there where there's no inherent storage capability. So that means there's a delicate balance for the folks who operate our grid. So you have to have supply and demand exactly the same at every given second, or you're gonna have blackouts, you're gonna melt transmission lines. And that's a challenge when you've got fickle wind, and days that aren't sunny. It means that the job of the power dispatcher could arguably be one of the most stressful other than maybe, you know, brain surgery. <laughs> that's right. And so that's a really long-winded background for the smart grid, Jason. I, to your question, I almost forgot what the question was, but <laughs> I think I'm coming back to it is what is a smart grid and why do we need one? So smart grid, let me just give first kind of a abstract definition of it. Smart grid is the digital overlay on our electric grid that uses two-way communication and sensors to detect and react to conditions on the grid, many of them local. Okay, what the heck did I just say? <laughs> so just think of it like overlaying like digital technology on top of our electric grid. One way to make this less abstract is to talk about smart meters. Most of us now have these on our houses. There's about 115 million smart meters that have been deployed over the last 10 to 15 years. In the old days, someone come out to your house once a month, check your meter, send you a bell, right? It was very arcane. Now, smart meters can be programmed to read at an interval. So the electric power that you use for the next 15 minutes, Jason, uh, your utility could see exactly when you used it, and that can be fed back to the utility via fiber or microwave. That is the basis for a lot of the smart grid is smart metering. You might also think, when you think of smart grid, of the type of devices that sit on the grid. There's smart thermostat, right? So Google Nest, you can be on your iPhone far away from your house and you can set the temperature. Or you have smart appliances, or now there's even like smart water heaters that know when to heat up the water uh, in your 50 gallon tank. So there's lots of devices that are quote smart that sit and hang off this grid and there's lots of software and technologies that help control those devices. So given that a smart grid or all these digitally connected devices now, I can, you know, I'm sure for, you know, the utility side of things, having those devices connected and having this higher resolution data has huge potential value for managing fluctuations in, in load, which I know can be it, a huge challenge. Yeah, it's a huge asset, right? We talked at the start about these large, gigantic plants. But all of a sudden now you've got all these devices that can do things for the grid, whether it's support generation or be turned off during certain times when we have variability in the grid. One concept I think we should talk about is peaks. So on hot summer days, you know, if we're having, you know, 100 plus degrees for three days in a row, you know, everyone's, everyone's clicking on their air conditioning and demands on the electric system just skyrocket. It's crazy. And people who are trying to manage the grid are scrambling, you know, how are we going to produce enough power to meet all the demand, right? One thing people hate is a blackout, right? A brownout. 
And what's worse than a blackout or brownout when it's 100 degrees outside? Exactly. And the same thing happens in the winter. You know, uh, people get up in the morning, they turn on their uh, turn on their heat and, you know, they need their power. So how do you manage peaks? It's a central question in managing the grid. Think about it this way. What was the old strategy when we had peaks? You've got sources of power that are like coal plants. You've got natural gas plants. There's things nuclear. called peaker, uh, nu- nuclear. Yes. I say that like George Bush nuclear. <laughs> um, and you have gas peaker plants. Now what's happening is you're taking pieces off the top of that stack, like these peaker plants, right? Natural gas, or you have less coal. So you don't have as many resources now to deal with those peaks. And so there's needs to be new strategies, right? Because we've got more renewables and the old fossil fuel base and peakers are decreasing. So there's a couple things you can do. One, you can send a price signal. So we talked about smart meters, right? So Jason, what I'm gonna do now is if you do your laundry at six in the morning, I'm gonna charge you a lower price. And now, because we, you have a smart meter, I can see that that's when you use your power. But if you're gonna do your laundry at five in the afternoon when peak heat, I'm gonna charge you four times as much. You decide what you wanna do, but I'm gonna send you a, I'm gonna send you a price signal. Now we have the technology to do that, right? And that just needs to be combined with policy and utility rates that support that. And there could be many other places in the home, I, you know, that you could see that being relevant, right? Dishwasher, I'm guessing, or charging your car, all those things that you don't need right there at the moment. I mean, the coffee maker, you're probably still stuck with that, you know, being in the morning, but but these other things you could see getting them ready and having them shift based on differences in price. Exactly. So price signals are definitely a powerful tool to manage peaks. The second concept I want to talk about is demand response. And this is a really common practice where basically I'm going to pay you as a consumer or as a business to take less power during a certain amount of time. And so demand response is this concept that's very common to manage peaks where you go out and basically you sign up, hold storage facilities, paper plants to not run their production during peak times. And you write them a big check and then they just do their production at a different time. Or on a residential side, what's, what causes that peak in the summer? Typically, why is the, why is there peak? Air, air conditioning, right? Air conditioning, right? It's air conditioning is the big beast. Now, it might seem kind of funny, like, well, gosh, why would I want to use less air conditioning on a really hot day? I mean, you couldn't pay me enough to do that. <laughs> I mean, just, you have to sweeten the pie. For you got sure. to sweeten the pie. So, and you know, so they've they've kind of solved this problem, like with Nest or some of these smart thermostats, you can set back your temperature, bump it up three degrees. So you're just a little, little less uncomfortable, right? But you get a big check. Or they do something called cycling where your air conditioning turns off for 15 minutes, comes on for 15 minutes, where you have a minor inconvenience to someone, but in the end, they have their power, they can still charge their phone. This isn't like some like small idea just sitting over in the corner. The demand response is huge. Uh, there's about 60 gigawatts in the United States of demand response. So what's a gigawatt? That's a billion watts or roughly the electricity to power 60 million homes, give or take. That just gives you a sense of magnitude. That's substantial. 
And I'm imagining it has taken many years to get there, given that you're talking, especially at a residential scale, very small increments. You need a lot of those. Yeah, it takes a lot of what they call door knocking. And I'm getting people comfortable with something that feels like Big Brother. Right. But most of these programs allow the consumer to override. So if, if you want your conditioning fully on, you can have it fully on. Right. Um, but uh, there are incentives for people to participate in reducing their power take. That's great. The third thing I want to talk about for managing peaks is storage. Storage is the holy grail for the electric system. We talked earlier about you can't store on the grid uh, electricity. So in recent years, there's been a lot of advancement in battery storage, and that is going to make renewables that much more attractive, and we're already seeing it. So now often when you see a large solar development, they call it solar plus storage. So there'll be times of the day uh, when that solar array is producing a lot of uh, electricity, maybe even more than what the grid needs. And what you do is you site a very, very large battery right next to that solar plant, and it takes that excess and it stores it. So eventually the sun starts to go down and the sun starts going down at the same time when people are getting home from work and need a lot of power. So that's a a little bit out of sync. But if you have that huge battery, you start to then to uh, discharge that battery and provide power to the grid that was generated earlier in the day. So you basically have something called diurnal balancing. The same thing can be done with wind. Basically, you grab the excess uh, wind production, you put it in a large battery. Right now, lithium-ion batteries, like we see in our everyday appliances, what you see uh, in your uh, cell phone, or yeah. cell phone, uh, in electric your car, electric car, same technology. In fact, Tesla is not just making electric vehicles and going to space and all that, all that other stuff. They're also creating these very large battery parks that utilities use to help manage. Uh, renewables. Um, In places in California, you'll see these battery parks. They look like a site with maybe 10 to 20 large shipping containers. And those are literally filled with millions of little small, you can't see my hand right now, finger-sized battery cells uh, that are storing power and being used to support renewables. It's a really exciting development. Costs of these large batteries have gone down about 80% over the last 10 years. And it's becoming a really affordable solution. So storage, I think, is is coming. It's not just lithium ion. There's all sorts of ways that you can, crazy ways you can store electricity, but the, the power costs, I mean, the costs of storage are coming down. So I think making sure I'm understanding or kind of recapping, in a smart grid world, there's really sort of three primary tools in the toolbox to help us deal with this, this variability that we're facing in terms of integrating more renewables, in terms of more extreme weather events, and that is, you know, a price signals. So knowing, you know, having something out there that tells folks when they ought to be using power, uh, demand response, where, you know, you've got all these interconnected devices that are willing to, or, or industrial facilities that are willing to back off on their production at key times that, that helps smooth out those peaks. And then obviously storage so that we have the ability to store, you know, excess renewables for a time when, when the supply curve doesn't quite align with demand. Yeah, and there's there's other tools, but I think those are ones that are prominent. And like I say, storage, 
Storage is the one I think that gives us a ton of promise for renewables and how to achieve uh, some of the, the goals we have around becoming a you know, 100% renewable grid. So clearly already a ton of benefits associated with having a, a smarter grid. Are there, are there other benefits beyond what we've been talking about here that are, that are worth calling out? Yeah. I mean, let's look at kind of some of the crazy weather events climate change is causing. I read recently that in the past five years, we've seen a doubling of, quote, billion dollar uh, weather events, wildfires, floods, locusts, <laughs> storms like Sandy. And what happens is uh, our transmission lines get knocked out or a generation plants click offline. And, you know, we demand reliable electric power. And so this is a big challenge, right? How do you how do you manage that when you've got this interconnected grid? Something that we're seeing that I think holds a lot of promise are called microgrids. So what is a microgrid? It's basically a self-contained zone that both produces and consumes electricity. So imagine you've got a big industrial park, for example, and there's a storm and the the grid goes down and your uh, facility is like producing really critical stuff and you need to keep things running. A microgrid then basically allows you to island, basically go off the grid, right? And within that microgrid, there's key components. Of course, you've got the, the components that are consuming the power, but now you can put in solar arrays. Um, you can put in a large battery. Maybe you have some generators that are hopefully using something that are that's not too fossil fuel-y. <laughs> but basically somewhat of a, a green solution when there are these weather events that allows people to continue to use, use electricity. Uh, we, we see these projects all over the country. They used to be like little proof of concepts, but now we're seeing them on a large scale, particularly like in California is we're seeing a lot of these microgrids. So this is a trend that will continue as we have these uh, weather events to deal with the grid's resilience. So given all the, the advantages we're talking about of a smart grid, whether, you know, more resilience in the face of climate change, helping us go green, if we sort of fast forward, can you give me a summary of what our electric grid of the future might look like? Sure. Uh, Jason, think of it this way. More peaks, more green, more variable generation, more disruption, that's climate disruption, and more distributed. So more peaks, more green, more variability, more disruption, more distributed. We need a transition time and we'll still need natural gas plants, which are predictable to generate electricity. So is there kind of helping buffer us? Um, you mentioned the word distributed. Can you elaborate on what a, you know, a distributed energy resource is? Yeah, sure. These are power generation sources and load, load meaning power consumption, that are spread out at homes and businesses across the grid. So think, 50 million electric water heaters in the United States, millions of smart thermostats that are Wi-Fi enabled to either go up or down, electric vehicles that can be charged or discharged with the signal. Imagine if we had a fraction of Norway's 56% EV share. What a resource that would be. Hope think, we get there soon. <laughs> hopefully. Think millions of homes with rooftop solar paired with their home battery storage. These are distributed energy resources. So what brings us all together? Well, you have something called aggregators. And imagine millions of homes and businesses 
that are putting their energy on the grid or using less power when needed brought together by these large uh, aggregators running something called a virtual power plant. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I remember utilities of the past and thinking about nobody wanted to work in energy because it was boring, but this sounds super exciting. This is cool and sexy. And with a name like that, you know. (laughs) So now a grid operator can send a signal to a distributed virtual power plant and do for the grid what a gas-fired electricity generating plant might do today. So this is not future arm-waving talk. This is happening today. Virtual power plants being launched around the country. So are virtual power plants the answer to give us more stability on the grid as we get more wind and solar? They will help. There's new innovations that will come as they have in the past that will fill out this picture, but it's one example of what we see happening to deal with this grid that has more peaks, more green, more variable, more disruption, and more distributed resources. So I think my head hurts a little bit from all the data <laughs> that you've walked us through, <laughs> but but I do feel, no pun intended, smarter about smart grid. And <laughs> clearly... Um, feel optimistic about what it has to offer both in our transition to 100% renewable and, you know, given these more extreme weather events that that are, you know, going to be a reality for us. So thanks for coming on the show and sharing some of your your knowledge and helping us all get get smarter. Thanks, Jason. It was uh, fun exploring our inner geeks on this. And I am optimistic as well. Thanks, Tom. I really enjoyed that that interview with Tom. I thought he did a nice job of, you know, talking about how the different pieces play together. It was also good to get some context on kind of the evolution of the grid and this delicate supply-demand dance that utilities have been trying to do for years and, and is just going to get more complex as we integrate, you know, more distributed resources and, you know, as climate change means more extreme weather events. Yeah, I was, I was really... Uh... I remember when he talked about balancing and I was really intrigued by that whole concept and how difficult that kind of is to match the demand with the supply. Yeah, and while it's exciting to think about, there's clearly going to need to be some some rules of the road in place to ensure that by having us all participating in that, you know, that power ecosystem that we're not causing trouble. But I liked how he, he outlined really kind of the three key tools that enable us to maintain that balance, you know, to reduce those peaks, you know, the ability to use price signals. So, you know, really making it clear when it makes sense economically to, you know, to be consuming electricity, talking about this idea of demand response, where you have all of these industrial and residential entities that are signed up to basically say, hey, we'll, you know, we're willing to incrementally reduce our demand at a time when, you know, you have this hot day or this really cold day and you're trying to keep the lights on. And then, of course, storage and yeah. how quickly that's evolving and exciting, obviously, to hear about the the build out of that. What do you think? Well, one of the things that struck out to me was the the idea of these big power outages. It reminds me of this last winter when we had, of course, the ice storm here. And, you know, I was yeah. out of power for like six days. Yeah, we had to deal with you coming in over here and living in the house. For I was at days, Hotel huh? Hotel uh, Jason Lewis over here during that time. <laughs> of course, it really 
highlights the fact of how much we depend on electricity in our lives, which is something we, you know, obviously take for granted. Totally. Uh, quite a bit. So when we're talking about, you know, upgrading the grid and going to smart grid, it really hits home that how important that could be. Also, how, how the smart grid can help to integrate renewables, because I know that you have peaks and sometimes the renewables don't line up with those peaks. Right. And when you can get the smart grid going where people's electric cars or if people start getting solar and battery storage in their house, it just becomes like this big resilient entity. So I, don't, I thought that was really exciting stuff. Yeah, and of course, to your point about solar panels and electric cars, right? I mean, you could see a future where we have an app on our phones that enables us to put in place all the settings that are priorities for us. And, you know, so that you have that peak day, you're pulling off of your car battery, you're reducing the temperature, your hot water heater for a certain period of time, you're dropping the temperature in your house by a couple degrees. Sure. And if you magnify that over millions of homes, all of a sudden we don't need these gas, natural gas peaker plants. Yeah, exactly. You could even get like, if, if and or logic probably in some of this, if the power, if the price point goes down below this point, run this thing. Right. Or if it doesn't, run it at midnight. Yeah, in that in that future state, while you might not in a month's time have big savings, you could see how over the course of a year, that's like it's potentially real money. Huge. I mean, even when people talk about the collective amount of power that people use to charge their phones and do certain functions online, it's massive. Yeah, I mean, you can fast forward and <clears throat> think of a future where, you know, maybe although there were you know, various factors in Texas's cold snap that they had. <laughs> but you could see how having a smart grid fully deployed and in place could help with a situation like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was it was the fault of all those wind turbines, Jason. Don't you remember? Yeah. <laughs> wind turbines. Wind turbines that they just elected not to purchase with the cold weather package. Yeah, don't get me going on that. That's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> so, as always, this leads into, you know, what can we do? In my mind, priority number one really ties back to the infrastructure bills that we mentioned earlier. You know, not only are the, you know, it's the first infrastructure bill, the bipartisan one that passed the Senate, not only is that critical to modernizing our grid, but you have the secondary bill that is, you know, still being ironed out that will most certainly have critical provisions for addressing climate change. So, you know, how do we get those across the finish line? You know, if you're following the headlines right now, there are two senators that are dragging their feet in terms of supporting these bills. And I would think dragging your feet is maybe generous, but it's Kirsten Sinema of of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And so we're going to encourage everybody to send a social media message. We'll have resources on our website to do that. We'll want to make these positive and emphasize all the many reasons why we need to do this despite the fact that I know many of us that are following the news are, are pretty frustrated seeing them be obstacles to addressing something that is hands down the most critical issue facing us as a nation. Definitely. You know, I think another thing, I know I talked about looking for my, my smart thermostat earlier, and, you know, I think we can all can look at our homes and figure out ways and, and devices that we can use to make them smarter, more efficient at using energy. And also you can look into what kind of programs your utility has I guess what I'm most interested in is you consider moving to becoming a smarter energy consumer if if the showers are going to last as long. We'll have to see. See, that's where that two-way grid could be a big deal. I could have a setting on there that when I'm busting out that shower at the wrong time, they Alexa or somebody could be like, get out of the shower, dummy. 
you know, or something like that. <laughs> or maybe Chelsea can. She just set a timer on your showers. <laughs> that, that could be too. Well, yeah, you we only get that. so much hot water, you know, and then it flips to cold. Anyway, uh, thank you as always for joining us. Climate Optimist is brought to you by Climate Stewards Collective. You can follow us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And of course, follow us on social at Climate Stewards Collective.